Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to our our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be considering chapter 14 and verses 14 to 20. So, Revelation 14, verses 14 to 20. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. Please then, beloved in the Lord, hear with me the reading of God's Word. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, brothers and sisters, the announcement of God's judgment was given to us in verses 6 to 11 that we looked at just a couple weeks ago. And that announcement, we said, served as a warning. It served as a warning about what those who reject Christ will ultimately be made to endure. And these warnings are good. These warnings are necessary. They're needed. Because for those who would hear these messages, many of them so-called professing believers, they would be in the church and they would hear this message proclaimed thinking that they are in right standing with the Lord, that they belong to Christ and that heaven is their home, when in fact it isn't. Many of these people who would be hearing this message are those who compromised with the Roman government, who would have pledged allegiance to the emperor and denied Christ in order to escape suffering a penalty, perhaps even death. Some of these people in the churches who would have heard this warning go out and who needed to hear it are those who would have compromised their faith by going to pagan trade guild festivals and participating in the worship of these pagan deities, eating that meat that was sacrificed to them there and participating in all the sexual and moral practices that were going on at that celebration. These would have been people who were in the churches who had left their first love never to return again. 
Right? These people who needed to hear the warning are those who had a reputation of being alive, but who inside were dead. The people who needed to hear the warning were people in the churches who did not keep the commandments of God closely to their hearts. And in fact, abandon God's revealed will for their life. But this too, brothers and sisters, I want us to see, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, is a warning for all true believers as well. But it is meant to warn the true believer of what? To not be indifferent to sin. To not conform to this world's practices. To not grow tired of daily fighting the battle against sin and against Satan. Right? To, to not be discouraged when it seems as if evil is conquering good. But rather, this is a warning to us all. Right? To see what happens to those who, who do not do those things. Right? Who turn and become friends with the world. And so this is a warning to all believers in the churches that whatever God calls you to do, whether in life or in death, you are to do it well. You are to do it well. If that is to live, then you are to live to and for Christ. And if you are to die, you are to die trusting Christ. That is the message to His church. Now in verses 12 and 13 that we looked at last week, we moved away from a warning to a call. We moved away from a warning now to a call. A call of what? A call to the body of Christ for patient endurance. And the Spirit encouraged the saints to patient endurance by telling them what? By telling them last week of that picture of the utter blessedness of heaven. The utter blessedness in which they will be when they die. And He did that. Why? So that they would forge along in the Christian life. Not being led by a spirit of fear, but being led by a spirit of freedom. Knowing that in body and soul, they belong to the Lord. And even if someone were to take their life, with the Lord is where they shall be. And that existence, brothers and sisters, and that utter blessedness is such a a blessed one. Why? Because we said it's better than our existence now in every way. Right? Our heavenly existence will be better than our earthly existence in every way. And as we contemplated, as we spoke about that heavenly existence that we will enjoy, as we looked at how heaven is better than earth in every way last week, we could only imagine the effect that that had on the saints living in Asia Minor, couldn't we? We can only imagine the effect that that message had on those who were being persecuted those who were being threatened with death, how those two verses must have acted like medicine upon the souls of their hearers. Acting as medicine upon that soul, arousing faithfulness as their hearts are gripped by that stunning reality that all toiling and all tears and all trouble shall cease when they die. Or when Christ returns again in glory, as they will then eternally rest with the Lord from all of their labors. Why? Because Christ now has entered that rest and has promised to return to gather us with Him in glory once again. And that message that we have heard over the last two weeks has been a timeless message, hasn't it? It's a timeless message because that that call to perseverance 
That warning about the judgment, that picture of the utter blessedness that awaits all of God's people is something that we all need to hear, isn't it? It's something that we all need to hear. It's medicine for all of our souls as we think about the utter blessedness of heaven. And as we do, what, what is it meant to do? It's meant to then deter us from sin. As you hear these things, as you hear the call, as you hear the warning, as you hear about heaven, all of these things are meant to deter us from all sin. It likewise is meant to strengthen the church. Right? To give us resolve to continue to persevere in the world in the midst of adversity is to, meant to give to us great consolation and encouragement and comfort. Because the reality is this, ultimately, every person Everyone here today will die one day. We are all appointed once to die, and then what? Then comes the judgment. Then comes the judgment. The judgment that we were warned about earlier in chapter 14 is the judgment that is now depicted for us in these final seven verses of chapter 14. Now, brothers and sisters, there are, there are many theories concerning how this world is going to come to an end. Or there are many theories about what might happen to humanity. Perhaps we will ultimately become extinct for a variety of reasons. You know, if you listen to the, the climate change people, right, maybe we're going to you know, destroy our, our world in 30 years and we're going to kill ourselves off. But what I want us to see is, is that that is not the case. Right? Our text tells us that is not the way in which things shall end but rather there is coming a moment when God will bring all people collectively before His throne. And as He brings them collectively before His throne, in a public manner, He will judge all people. And it will be a great and magnificent manifestation of the glory of God as He will exercise mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and He will exercise His justice and the eternal damnation of the ungodly. Now in our text today, what we also see, specifically though, is that it is God in the person of the Son and Jesus Christ our Lord who will be the one who will execute this final judgment. Look with me at verse 14, please. Then I looked and behold, a, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Okay, this leads us to our first point this morning, which is the glory of the judge. The glory of the judge. Now, what I want us to see is that verse 14 makes it very clear to us who this one is. Who this Son of Man, one like the Son of Man is. In fact, that, that very phrase, one like the Son of Man, is pulled directly from Daniel 7.13, which refers to the Son of God, which we've looked at before. Likewise, it is the Son of God who came down and assumed to Himself that human nature, who did what? Called Himself the Son of Man some 80 times in the Gospel. That was his most favorite title to use of himself. The Son of God calling himself the Son of Man. Likewise, 
we see that it is the Son of God in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, who is what? We are told is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. It is the person of the Son of God who we're told in Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, who will be galloping in, who will be trotting in on the white horse, and when He does, what will He be wearing on His head? Many diadems, or many crowns. And so we see, brothers and sisters, here in verse 14, that there is one like the Son of Man being described, who is coming on a cloud, and who is wearing a crown. So it makes it very clear for us who this figure is. We can see that this is a, a clear description of Christ. And the event, though, that is being described is the return of Christ. Not just any return of Christ, though, the, the second advent of Christ, the, the final return of Christ in glory. That same return that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24, verse 30, when He says this, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Oh, brothers and sisters, the glory that we shall behold when the Son of Man comes on the clouds. The glory that we will behold. The glory of the only begotten Son. The same glory as the glory of the Father. Right? Christ who is the, the brightness of His Father's glory, the express image of His person. Christ being of the same nature and the same substance and the same perfections as His Father. And so what we will see is the same glory as the Father coming on the clouds on that final day. And here... He comes, brothers and sisters, likewise, sitting upon a cloud of glory. He comes sitting upon a, a throne of glory that He who is God alone is worthy to be on. See then the difference between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. See how men saw Him when He first came and how every eye will see Him when He comes again. When Christ first came, He assumed to Himself our nature. He took upon Himself the appearance of man. And as men looked upon Him, most of them seen Him as merely that man. When Christ first came, He came what? In humility. He was born in a manger. What does Isaiah tell us in Isaiah 53, verse 2. Speaking of Christ, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. He had no beauty that we should desire Him. How else did Christ come in His first coming? He came in the appearance of man. He came in humility. And ultimately, He went out of the world as men looked upon him as a as a common criminal, as they took him outside of the city and they and they crucified him. 
And they looked upon Him and they mocked Him thinking that they triumphed over Him through His death. Brothers and sisters, let us see that this will not be the case in our Lord's second coming. When He returns, He will not return in humility. He will return in power and glory. A greatness that will far exceed anything that you and I can comprehend. He will not come in the appearance of a weak man either. He will come as God. And He will come as judge. And He will come with a crown upon His head, though not like the one that He wore at Calvary. But the crown that He will wear now will be indicative of His sovereignty and absolute dominion over all things as the one and only true King whose kingship extends over all of creation, even over His every enemy. Brothers and sisters, when He comes again, all will look upon Him once more. But this time, they will not look upon Him mocking Him, but they will look upon Him with fear and with terror and with reverence, acknowledging that through His death, He did not lose, but in fact, He defeated and conquered and triumphed over His every enemy. All will then be made to bow down before His throne of glory, recognizing His dominion and confessing that Jesus is Lord. I want us to see also what the whiteness of the cloud indicates to us as He comes down in it. The whiteness of the cloud, brothers and sisters, symbolizes the pure holiness in which Christ shall appear. The pure holiness. The Son of God is holiness. The Son of God is holiness. Holiness is not a quality that He possesses. Holiness is the very essence of who He is. Understand that. For when the angels sinned, they retained their nature, but lost their holiness. The same is true of you and I and Adam. For us, holiness is a quality. For God, His nature and His holiness are not two different things, but they are one in the same. This is why we read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord. None holy like Him. As holy in Himself, one author says this, that Jesus, as the, in the person of the Son of God, is unmixedly holy. He is unmixedly holy. What does that mean? He is pure light and no darkness. He is utter, pure holiness. Which is why then, brothers and sisters, we need to see that when He returns, He must Come with sickle in hand. As pure holiness, when He returns, He cannot look upon iniquity with a favorable eye. When He comes, He must look upon iniquity with a hateful eye and with a revengeful eye and with an angry eye. And so, yes, when He returns again, He is coming to redeem His people. But likewise, when He comes with sickle in hand, He is coming to judge the unrighteous. In fact, brothers and sisters, Joel chapter 3 is a text that is being alluded to here. And there it talks about a sickle 
which is symbolic for judgment there. And so I want us to turn together, please then, to Joel chapter 3. And let's see the text that is behind Revelation 14. Joel chapter 3. And we'll read verses 12 to 16. Joel chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So, the context, judgment. Verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And so we see there that the sickle is what? It's a metaphor for God's judgment. And so we see that there will be a final judgment that of all people who will go before His throne and there will be this, this dual harvest that will take place between the righteous and the unrighteous in this one event. This very same thing that Paul describes for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul describes here the general judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. And he says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus Himself in the, in the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13, verses 39 to 40 tells us that the, that the harvest occurs at the end of the age. Jesus says that. And he tells us that the, the reapers are the angels. And he goes on to say, just as the weeds, and in that parable they represent uh, rebellious sons of the devil. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so too will it be of the ungodly at the end of the age. And so Scripture is very clear. There's going to be a final judgment. It's going to be a final judgment of all men, though the, the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? There's going to be this final judgment. And when the Son of Man comes, brothers and sisters, He will not need any of our testimonies. Right? Because when He returns, He is returning in the person of the Son as omniscient God. Right? Who knows everything. He knows the, the heart of every person who will be judged and He will judge accordingly. But I want us also to see that that when that great day comes, that this will be an event unlike any other event. Right now, many people stand before earthly judges, don't they? What is oftentimes though true is that the judge himself is, is more wicked than the one who they are standing before. What is oftentimes true of those earthly judges is that they, they punish too softly. Right? Or they punish too harshly. But when everyone stands before the judge of heaven and earth, before the Holy One of God, He will
will judge perfectly righteously. Right? The Holy One of God will most certainly do what is right. And so there will be no getting off with a light sentence for the impenitent sinner who has rejected Christ and who has rejected the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. See then everyone here today who it is that you will stand before. See that the one that you stand before already knows what is in every one of your hearts. And so I ask when you stand before Him, what will He find in your heart? Will He find a rebellious heart? Will He find a Christ-rejecting heart? Will He find an impenitent heart? A hard heart? Or will He find a heart that has been softened by the Gospel and love of God? Will he find a, a heart that loves Christ and serves Christ and is humbled by Christ? Because, brothers and sisters, as a result, when he returns, either you will be cast into eternal condemnation or you will be turn, cast into right, eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are the only two options that we have. And so we have to ask ourselves, what type of heart will He find in us? Will He find a hard heart, an impenitent heart? Or will He find a Christ-loving, Christ-serving heart that through faith in Christ has found forgiveness of sin and has been reconciled to God and because of the grace of God will be rewarded with eternal life with Christ? This leads us then to our second point this morning, which is the harvest of the elect. Our second point, the harvest of the elect. Please look with me at verses 15 and 16. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Here, what do we find? Well, first, that an angel comes from the temple to this one who is like the Son of Man. Now, what does that coming out from the temple mean to, to signify to us? Well, it is meant to signify that this angel has come with a message from God. Because throughout the book of Revelation and Scripture in general, isn't the, the temple is used as figurative language of God's presence, isn't it? And so this angel comes from God's presence with this message to give to the Son of Man. In fact, we see that temple language used in Revelation 3.12 that same way. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And so this angel is sent by God the Father to God the Son with this message. And what is the message? And what is the message? That the time of judgment is now. Right? That is the message. But remember, brothers and sisters, that although Christ, or excuse me, the Son of God, has taken upon Himself the human nature of man. And so he is, he is one person, two natures, right? Divine nature and human nature. And so according to his mediatorial role and his human nature, 
I think it's easy for us to understand why the angel must come and deliver this message to Christ. That is why. Well, remember Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Right? Jesus Himself says this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so here this angel comes to tell Christ according to His human nature and His mediatorial role that the time of judgment is now. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, what are we told accompanies Christ when He returns? There we read this, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. Here in our text, what are we told? That this angel comes out from the temple with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. That word here for, for calling with a loud voice in our text likewise can be translated to cry out. To cry out. And so what do we see in our text is that the angel comes from the temple crying out with a loud voice to he who sits upon the cloud. And he cries out to him, put in your sickle and reap. And so we see, brothers and sisters, actually that 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 is addressing the very same issue that our text is here as well, the, the final judgment. And we know this, or excuse me, now the, the godly here, what we need to see are that they are compared to the wheat harvest. Right? The godly are compared to the wheat harvest. And we know that based on the word here for ripe, that word here for ripe means dried out. And it's a term used for, for grain when it is ready to be harvested. And so this is kind of a, a synonym for us being the wheat harvest. And John the Baptist himself identifies us as, a, as wheat, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, John the Baptist says this, His winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn." But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Right there, the wheat are the believers. The, the chaff are the unbelievers. But what is it that differentiates though the, the wheat from the chaff? It is faith in Christ. It is receiving Christ through His Word. Right in the parable of the sower, what are we told? That as the sower goes out and casts his seed, what is he casting forth upon the earth? In Luke chapter 8, verse 11, that seed, we're told, is the Word of God. So that the Word of God is the instrument that God uses right, to bring people to Himself. The Word of God is the instrument to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. Right? The sheep hear His voice and they come. The goats do not and they don't come. But this is why it's so vitally important then for every one of us here today that if you hear the voice of God, that you do not harden your heart as those did in rebellion. Because the day is coming in which none of us know in which Christ will return and every eye will see Him and He will judge both the righteous and the unrighteous. And the difference between those who are sent to glory and those who are cast into the lake of fire is whether one believed or disbelieved the Gospel. Whether one had faith in Christ or one did not and rejected Christ. What I want us also then to see, brothers and sisters, is that the harvest will only come when it is ripe. 
Right? The harvest will only come when it is ripe, which means what? That Jesus Christ will not return again until the full number of the elect are saved. Right? Jesus Himself tells us that. In Matthew 24, verse 14, And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Let us also then, brothers and sisters, see the importance then of preaching and of sending, of home missions and of missions abroad. What does Jesus say? That the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We also ought to then see the importance of of hearing the Word of God. This is an exhortation to the church about our need to proclaim the Word and the Word only. Right? The church is not to be a place to, to be seeker-sensitive. The, the church is not to be a place that foregoes the truth of God's Word to make it attractive to sinners. Right? The church is, is put here right? not to compromise or to not teach people how to be good people. Right? The, the, the pulpit is not the place for the minister to tell you a bunch of stories to make you, you laugh and be, and be happy and glad. The pulpit is not the place for the ministers to, to tickle the ears of the hearers. But the pulpit in the church is the place where the voice of Christ is to go forth in the proclamation of the Gospel. For it is only in the proclamation of the Gospel that the Holy Spirit works to save sinners and brings them to faith in Christ. The only hope a sinner has of being numbered amongst this wheat harvest is faith in Christ. That is the only hope we have to be numbered amongst His elect when the wheat harvest comes and when Jesus returns again. It's a return, brothers and sisters, that is for certain. Although the day and the hour is not, for this is only known by our Lord. Which likewise teaches us to always be living ready for the return of Christ, doesn't it? It's a reminder to us of that. This is why Scripture constantly is exhorting us to a few different things. One being prudence. Prudence means the the use of our our wisdom to understand, to think, to consider. Being prudent is the opposite of being foolish. Being prudent means hearing God's Word and doing it. That's what we are exhorted to do. Scripture likewise exhorts believers to be watchful Right? To be watchful over our souls. To not allow them to be drawn away by the world. To not allow them to, to, to wane cold. But rather to keep them in the Lord. Likewise, we are exhorted to be diligent, aren't we? Right? Diligent in every task that God has called us to. And to do so willingly and joyfully and earnestly, knowing that the Lord may return at any time so that we would not be caught off guard like the children of the darkness. Because, brothers and sisters, we are what, Paul says? We are the children of the light. And so we are to live as children of light. To live before the presence of God every moment of our life. Ready for whenever He shall return. Those who have fallen asleep spiritually, when Christ returns, will be put to shame. Maybe some of you here today know what the the shame feels like 
of having someone show up to your house and knock on your door unexpectedly. And your house isn't clean and tidy as you'd like it to be. Right? Many of us know what that's like. Right? You look out of the, the blinds, you see someone there, and you hurry up and you, right, you try to tidy up your house, you try to clean your house, don't you? Well, brothers and sisters, the time for doing that is beforehand. Not when Christ returns. When Christ returns, that is not the time to start cleaning up and to start tidying up ourselves. That must be done before His return. I was listening to a sermon this past week by Dr. Joel Beakey. And he told a story of uh, Luther in which Luther was asked the question, if you knew that Christ was coming back today, if Christ was returning today, what is it that you would do? And Luther's response was an odd one, a strange one. But it was, and I'm paraphrasing to the extent that I remember, uh, he would go out and plant a tree. If he knew the Lord was returning, he would go out and plant a tree. Well, what did he mean by that? What Luther meant by that is he would go about his day normally. Because he's always living ready for the return of Christ. Right? Luther doesn't need to five minutes to get his affairs in order before Christ returns. Right? He is always living expectantly for the Lord to return. He is always living in faith in Christ. And so the question is, can the same be said of all of you? Can the same be said of you? Or will you ask for a few minutes to tidy yourself up and to, to clean yourself up? If so, let this be an exhortation to you beforehand to ready yourselves and to always be living as if Christ could return. This then leads us, brothers and sisters, to our third and our final point, which is the gathering of the ungodly. Please look with me at verse, starting at verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung the sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Here, brothers and sisters, what do we see? First, we have an angel who comes out with a sickle. And immediately after, another angel who comes out from the altar. This angel who has authority over the fire. Now I ask you this here today, does this sound familiar to you? In what other places in the book of Revelation have we heard something similar to this? Think about Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, under the fifth seal. Was there not an altar? And what was going on underneath that altar? The, the, the souls of the martyrs were crying out, weren't they, under the altar? How long, O Lord? before you vindicate your people and you exercise judgment against the ungodly. And then what do we see in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 5? Under the seventh seal, 
Right? We're told an angel stands before what? The altar? To do what? To offer up the prayers of the saints? And in his hands is a golden censer and he fills it with fire. And what does he do? He flips it over and casts the fire down to the earth. Which we said was what? Right? The, the final judgment upon all of the earth. That is what that text depicted for us. And so, we shouldn't be surprised here that we see a very similar depiction here in Revelation verse, or excuse me, chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. Why? Because we said the whole book of Revelation is cyclical. We are constantly seeing uh, patterns and, and cycles of visions throughout the book that repeat themselves about the church age until the coming of Christ. Right? Chapters 1 to 3, 4 to 7, 8 to 11, and now what? 12 to 14. And so at the end of this fourth cycle of visions, what do we see? That very same angel who brings God's final wrath and judgment, which is symbolic of this fire, and he will send it down upon the earth. This angel comes though from the altar, which likewise reveals to us that he is coming to answer the prayers of the saints, which was the answer to that question, how long, O Lord? And the answer now that the angel has is, no more delay. The time is now. Now, remember what I said earlier about that word translated ripe. I said that it meant dried out. This is important to a point to note because the word that is used for ripe here is a different word. It's a different word. The word used ripe here means to be at its prime. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it, when we're thinking about grapes? Because now they're at their prime. They are ready to be gathered and squished so that the, the fullness of all of their juice will come flowing out of them. But what is this depiction, right? It's, it's dramatic imagery of the destruction that the ungodly will suffer when Christ returns, right? And this is a, a vivid picture for us of God standing upon and trotting over His enemies. That is what this is a picture of. Right, treading the wine press throughout the Old Testament without exception is symbolic or figurative for judgment. One example of that comes from Isaiah chapter 63 and verses 2 and 3. There we read this. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press? I have trodden the wine press alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. And so we see there the, the trotting of the, of the grapes and the wine presses is figurative language for judgment and God's destruction of the ungodly. But where does this trotting take place? We're told it takes place outside of the city. Outside of the city. What city? The holy city. The heavenly Jerusalem. But what else might be behind this phrase? Where was Christ crucified? Outside of the city. Outside of the city. And what was that symbolic of? Their rejection of Christ. Their rejection of Him as Lord and Messiah and King. 
And so now, what does Christ say when He comes? He is going to trod on them outside of the city, which is symbolic of His rejection now of them, and they having no part in the holy city of God with all of His redeemed. And as the rising of the blood comes up, it will come as high as the horse's bridle, we're told. The, the horse's bridle is the, is the headgear that the horse wears. And so we, what we need to understand by that language is that it's, it's battle language. It is battle language to tell us the, the nature of the judgment. It will not be a, a little blood spattering here and there. It will be utter and total destruction of the wicked. The fact that it spreads 1,600 stadia affirms our interpretation as well. The 1,600 stadia is equivalent to 184 miles. So think of 184 miles outside of the city. That is how, how far this is going and how high it's going, as high as the horse's bridle. Now that number can be attained realizing that numbers in the book of Revelation are all symbolic, that number can be attained a few different ways, I think. One is, you can square the number 4 and the number 10, and you get 1,600. And you ask, well, why would you square 4 and 10? Well, what is the number 4 constantly depicting? The number of the earth. right? North, south, east, west, the four corners of the globe we talk about. What about the number 10? Why the number 10? Well, the number 10 signifies what, we said? Completeness. And so this number signifies the complete and total judgment of the entire world. What also though could be behind the number is Genesis chapter 7. What happens in Genesis 7? We have the utter destruction of the world in the flood, don't we? A worldwide catastrophe and judgment, which was what? Typological of the final judgment to come. And what are we told happened during the flood, that it rained down upon them 40 days and 40 nights. 40 times 40 is what? 1,600. That likewise could be behind the number, but whatever the case is, we need to see that number 1,600 being symbolic for the complete judgment that will come. So, brothers and sisters, we will see that, that the sight of the Son of Man will be a stunning sight. It will be striking to all. When the Son of Man comes, though it will conjure up delight and joy in the hearts of God's people, and it will conjure up terror and confusion in the hearts of the ungodly. Right? The wicked will be judged who have indulged their sinful taste buds in this world. Drinking up all of their sin. Filling their belly with everything that is unclean in this world. And right now, they are storing up for themselves wrath. It constantly continues to to fill up more and more and more every day as they sin against God. We need to see that not only is God waiting to come until the full number of the elect are saved and come to faith in Him, He is also waiting to come and will not do so until the ungodly fill up their full measure of sin, and only then will He come to gather the clusters from the, from the vine of the earth. Right? He will not come until they are ripe. And so then let us see, brothers and sisters, that the 
last judgment must come because of the judgment of God. Right? God's justice requires this final judgment. He must punish evil. Right now, just as it was in the first century, right, men and women suffer for the sake of Christ in the Gospel. And right now, just as it was then, wicked people prosper even though they curse God and deny His existence. But know this, a time will come when Christ will return and the afflicted will be afflicted no more. And those that afflicted God's people will become the afflicted. Right? A day is coming when no man will be able to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, but rather they will all be made to pay homage to the King. Right? A day is coming when the tables will be turned. And when it comes, brothers and sisters, let us thank God that all who believe in the Son will enter into glory, not on the the basis of what we have done. For we know that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, but rather we will enter into glory because of what Christ has done. The work of the Son and the efficacy of His meritorious life and death. And so, brothers and sisters, may we long for that day. May we anticipate that day. May we live every day ready for that day, praying day and night. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Your Word is true. And Your Word is right. And Your Word is light unto our paths. We pray, Father, that You would guide us into all truth as we, throughout this day and the week, continue to think about this text and and what it means for Your your people. Lord, we pray that You would help us uh, by the Holy Spirit to stir us up to those virtues of, of prudence and of diligence and of watchfulness. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to be those who live our lives in faith, always ready for the return of Christ. And so, Father, we come before You this day asking all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.